0: This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. It's Thursday, January 14th. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast, and it is great to be back with you this week. There are a handful of people who have impacted this movement in a big way. The things we do today, the ways we do them. Mary Ippolyte-Smith, part of the executive leadership team at Maddie's Fund, is one of those people. My conversation with her up in just a moment, but a couple of things the Best Friends National Conference. Now, I don't know about you, but the conference season, it's something I look forward to every year. Beyond all of the great speakers and sessions, it's the one time of the year where we all get together. So seeing all of my friends, peers, it's sort of like animal welfare educational summer camp. But unlike the summer camp of my youth, there's 100% less bullying. So I am excited to be able to share with you that the Best Friends National Conference is happening this year. It will be online, but we'll still have that feeling of togetherness. I promise the Best Friends events team is working their butts off to make it as good as it's ever been. And just think of it this way, we'll save a few pennies from not hanging out at the bar. Now, who is the conference for? If you are listening to this, then there's a good chance that it is for you head to bestfriends.org conference. You can sign up for updates so you don't miss when registration opens. And we are looking for speakers. So you have from now until February 3rd to get your proposals in. Again, bestfriends.org conference. That's where you'll find the link to submit your proposal. And we'll have a link to that on the podcast website if that's easier for you. So go to bestfriends.org slash podcast and then just click on the link to episode 47. Again, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Click on the link to episode 47. The Million Cat Challenge launched in 2014 with the goal of saving one million cats. You can learn more about this shelter-based campaign by listening to episode 23 of the podcast when Dr. Kate Hurley was our guest. Well, they smashed that initial goal of one million cats, and they just passed three million. To mark that momentous occasion, the Million Cat Challenge team decided they would try to break the record the world's largest online toast, which they did. More than 350 people raised a glass over Zoom. I was one of them. I wanted to share this toast from Dr. Julie Levy, one of the co-founders of the challenge, as they set the record.
1: I'd like to ask you to raise a glass or a can to the Promise Keepers, to Maddie's Fund, the foundation built on a promise that was kept between a young couple and their best friend to the people working in a shelter because you kept on digging deep, pushing forward and innovating. And because of that, the face of animal sheltering has forever been changed. To the veterinarians, the new graduates and the old hands that performed all of these millions of surgeries, to the volunteer that gave their time, to the donor that gave their money, to the foster parent that gave their home, to the adopter that gave their heart, and to the cats that gave theirs back. This moment belongs to all of you. Cheers! Cheers.
0: They are not stopping at $3 million. To learn more about the challenge and how your organization can take part, head to our website for a link, bestfriends.org podcast. Again, click on the link to episode 47. Since its inception, Maddie's Fund has awarded nearly 8,000 grants totaling almost $250 million! That is a lot! From supporting individual organizations to larger national campaigns, the Million Cat Challenge, for example, to offering resources such as shelter medicine educational programs, online courses, conferences, and investing in promising new ideas such as the Human-Animal Support Services Model, Maddie's truly is a juggernaut in the movement. So I was excited to chat with Mary Ippoliti smith a member of the Maddie's Fund executive leadership team, not only about Maddie's Fund, but her career, her history, going back to the San Francisco SPCA and what she sees ahead for the no-kill movement. Mary, you've been doing this a while, and... Uh, I don't mean that in a year old way, so please don't take offense. What I mean to say is you have uh, a very rich and amazing background. So I've been uh, really excited to talk to you. Uh, I knew it was going to happen at some point. And I was doing research ahead of this, and I'm pretty sure I have this right. 1991 is when you started at the San Francisco SPCA. Well, actually
1: in 91, you know, I'd gone back to school to get my degree from UC Berkeley. I was what they called a re-entry student. And so when I was graduating from there, it was December 1990, somebody asked me, well, what is it that you really like to do? And I said, well, you know, I'd like to get a job where I could just um, sit at a desk and write about things that were important to me. And so I I had found, I'd gone to a lot of interviews after that, but nothing really seemed to gel. And then I saw this ad in the newspaper, right? This is 1991. So there actually were real newspapers that people read. And it was an ad for um, the San Francisco SPCA was looking for a grant writer. And so I put all my materials together and I sent it in and they called me in for an interview. And I interviewed with Brenda Barnett, who was the development director at the San Francisco SPCA. And we had probably one of the longest most non-direct conversation that you can imagine for a job interview. I think at one time one point she even asked me what my astrological sign was. So that and it all seemed to make sense to be honest with you. Anyway, I got the job. I knew nothing about grant writing, but I'd come from UC Berkeley and I certainly knew how to do research and I could write. So, it was Just an incredible experience, John. And as my oldest brother says, I'm the only person he knows that got paid less money after I got my degree than before. Because I think I started at the San Francisco SPCA as a grant writer at $19,000 a year.
0: So I I don't know, 30 years ago, 19 grand. I don't know what that is with inflation, I guess. Not a terrible amount of money, maybe for the uh, Bay Area. Yeah. So both the San Francisco SPCA and Maddie's Fund I think, really synonymous with Rich Avanzino. Yeah. I think the world of Rich, he's the coolest guy. Uh, And for those that may not be familiar with Rich, uh, widely regarded as the father of the no-kill movement uh, from his time at the San Francisco SPCA in the mid-70s, later becoming the president of Maddie's Fund. I've been very lucky to spend time with him. I've actually interviewed him a couple of times for some different projects. And I've heard the stories and this guy, you know, he's a rabble rouser, right? And I, I'm I'm not going to get the quote right, but basically to the effect of, you know, if we're not getting in the paper every day, we're doing it wrong, or if we're not getting sued. So I, I, I mean, I'm interested to know what was that? What was that environment like? And it really was like that, John.
1: I mean, uh, when Rich would do any public speaking, Somebody would always go with him, so we would figure out what it is that we had to raise money for because he would just um, shoot from the hip in terms of if there was an issue and he figured out a solution, that's what it would be. And it was probably one of the most exciting jobs you could have because every time I would sort of pop my head up and think, maybe I should look for something else to do, there would be a whole new campaign that would be started that it would just be so exciting to be part of that, you know, it's like before I knew it, almost eight or nine years had gone by and I was still with them and still excited about the work that I was doing. He was such a great leader in that he was never afraid to make a mistake. He wasn't afraid to um, try something different. And he definitely was connected to the community of people in San Francisco and wanted to continue to do right by them and their pets. And if it wasn't always a popular stance, he had the strength of his convictions to know that even if he made a mistake, he would go forward and he'd be able to correct it and pivot or reframe as needed. And having that kind of leadership example is what
0: was intoxicating and empowering. So you moved to Maddie's Fund. How long was that after you started at in San Francisco at the SPCA?
1: For about eight Eight and a half, nine years in uh, December of 98 is when I started working for Maddie's Fund. The Duffields had reached out to Rich to ask him to lead their um, foundation, and then Rich asked if I wanted to do that. It seemed to be at a time when I had to decide Did I want to, which side of the desk did I want to be on. Did I want to continue to work in the nonprofit side, or did I want to go into the foundation? And it was exciting to actually be part of something that was just starting out.
0: So again, if people don't know, Maddie's Fund, a pillar of animal welfare, I mean, it's hard to imagine a time without Maddie's, and I don't, actually don't know where we would be without Maddie's, but the history there, Dave and Cheryl Duffield, Dave, among other things, uh, set up the technology company a founder of PeopleSoft, which later became Oracle, and I'm pretty sure I have this right, the single largest donation in the history of animal welfare. Absolutely. At that time,
1: they were the first uh, philanthropists to significantly support animal welfare and as a result of that they took a lot of criticism from people that were just like well why aren't you supporting you know human health services but at that time you know and actually even today that segment of the philanthropic pie is still about 3%, right? And animals are linked with the environment, right? We don't even get our own little sliver of the pie, we have to share it. So even though the Duffields wanted to earmark their money for animals, there was still significant money that was being spent on you know human health services and other kinds of things. So they were definitely, you know, a rebel with a cause and it was, you know, a great cause. Like I said, all this time and I still haven't gotten tired of being part of the movement that we're in. And I think that it's probably because animals give us such a strong connection that allows us to overcome whatever differences are there. And for some reason, we all like to look at the differences, but with animals we get to look at what's similar, and I think it's that basis that can bring us together in much more powerful ways.
0: I don't know that everyone listening, Mary, has had the same connection to Maddie's Fund that a lot of us have. Uh, and by that, I mean, I grew up in the movement, if you will, in Utah, kind of on the rescue side during the No More Homeless Pets days. That's a Maddie's Fund project where, you know, if you created a coalition to end the killing of cats and dogs in an entire state, Could we do it? What would that look like? Yeah. And as I say, so many people come to the movement later or weren't necessarily connected to the no kill movement side, if you will. So, what was it like in 98? You know, I would go back a
1: little bit further than that because in 91 is when, you know, Rich and his team were working on what was going to become the adoption pact. He had given up the contract, and that was pretty revolutionary at the time, if you will, for the Humane Society not to have that contract and to go back to the city and say, hey, we'll help you establish an animal control agency, but it's not going to be us. And we will be supportive of that, but we're not going to be the main actors here. And so giving up the contract really allowed the San Francisco SPCA to think about what lifesaving really meant if it wasn't going to mean euthanizing healthy pets that could be, or treatable pets that could be rehabilitated and placed. That was pretty far reaching. And so, the more Rich got into that aspect of life saving, the more he started to see the need for the kinds of programs that were going to keep pets out of the shelter and into people's homes. So, foster care, strong volunteer programs, you know, his mobile adoption programs, right? At that time, people thought, You know, he was just throwing animals inside the cars as they would pass the SPCA. But so many people, the only way they knew the San Francisco SPCA was from those pop-ups that appeared, you know, in the Barcadero Center and the Financial District. And so many people got their animals from those little pop-ups because you walk into a shelter and you can be overwhelmed by the hundreds of animals that are there. But if you are just looking at a few cages with maybe five or six cats, it's a lot easier to... Find that special companion. So, those programs at the time were so meaningful and so controversial, which seems so ironic now as we look back on that, but they really were controversial. And there were a lot of people that were doing them across the country, but you know, this was really before the internet, this was before there was a lot of social media. I mean, we were talking about old fashioned press releases stories in the newspapers, you know, if you were lucky enough to get your pets on the five o'clock news, you know, things like that. That's what really made such a difference in, I think, translating the message to the daily lives of the people in your community. And Rich was always great at that because, like you said, he always wanted to be, you know, I think the public information department under Lynn Spivak, they put out messages every single day of the year and so by the time Maddie's Fund came into, the, um, into being, you know, Dave and Cheryl Duffield created the foundation in 1994, and uh, they ran it just among the family members, and they did a lot of really good work locally and some nationally, but they really wanted to step it up. And Rich talked to them about really coming up with some bold, audacious goals not just for what the foundation could do, but what our movement could do if there was sizable investments of resources to make that happen. And so when Rich came on board, one of the first kinds of projects that we funded were those community collaborations. And that was really animal control and rescue groups within a community working together for common goals, no bash and trash, but really supporting each other in ways that hadn't happened before, because the whole idea was individually as entities, there's only so much that we can hope to achieve, but together it's almost limitless what could happen. And so those community collaborations were really the offshoot of what best friends came to Alameda to talk to us about what they wanted to do for the state of Utah. And that was really at a time when nobody else was doing that, that kind of big collaboration and getting groups to work together. I mean, in some cases, these were groups that the only interaction they had with each other was that they were suing each
0: other. So then to come in and say, let's work together, that was unheard of. So we're talking over 20 years. And as I said earlier, it's hard to imagine a world of animal welfare, animal sheltering without Maddie's Fund. Yeah. But going back to that time, I mean, it, I mean, it changed. It changed everything.
1: When Maddie's Fund started, That was really the first significant funding that was being made available to animal groups on a national basis. And there were lots of people who came to us and said we were doing it wrong. And there were lots of people who said that they were willing to take a chance with us. But there were also a lot of groups out there that um, struggled with the infrastructure that they needed to have in order to be able to get the funds that we were making available in order to get the work done. I mean... Best Friends at that time was still a pretty small organization in terms of the nucleus and um, the group that you were a part of in Salt Lake City with the No More Homeless Pets. I mean, that was just we had such a, you know, with Holly and um, with Stuart, I mean, people that we never even met, but we'd have these, you know, year long relationships with just getting, you know, talking about the data and what did it mean and how did we use it and what could we do and what did we need to do going forward? It was some of the most exciting time ever because we didn't have a clue, but we just knew we had to keep working.
0: So again, again Mary, I'm always doing the uh, "well in my day" uh, shtick, and I don't really feel like I'm old enough to do that yet. But I do think, uh, I do think it really was, you know. And again, to point out, I wasn't involved until the mid But You know, people today say take risks, don't be afraid to, afraid to fail, which it's true. We should still be doing that, but you know, I, I feel like back then there was a, a time where all the things we know today there is it, kind of a structure today that it wasn't there like it was. Yep. So when we talk about taking risks, it was a different concept than it is today. Right. But I do think it was
1: it. There was advantages for being so small with such big ideas, right? Because it seemed like it was. Uh, smaller infrastructures and bureaucracies that we had to move around. And that kind of freedom really made a huge difference. So it's not like I long for those days, because I love the fact that those days were the basis of everything that's happening here. And you know, it's funny, I went to Best Friends for the first time in Kanab two years ago. That's your first time ever? First time ever. Yes. I had resisted going to the mothership all this time and then i went and it was the most life-changing experience ever john i mean it was phenomenal just phenomenal and i've always been sort of a coast person and i need to see the ocean but i just sort of fell in love with southern utah i mean i i had never experienced anything like that before and the canyons and the high deserts i mean it was just practically a religious experience, and I'm not really a very religious person.
0: Neither am I, but I obviously agree something very, very special about it. I want to talk about the no-kill movement. And, you know, from your perspective, let's talk about specifically the language of no-kill. I mean, still today isn't always embraced. It's controversial, quote-unquote. Yeah. But back then, you know... Back then, it was really controversial, right? Yeah, and uh, I I think it's important to talk about. But I, I, I do think we're turning the corner on getting people to understand what it means and why it's important.
1: I think so, and you know, no kill as a term has always been like that lightning rod. And I think the bottom line was the public always got it. It seems simple to them. No more killing. The nuances of it, they didn't really care about. That's just sort of what they expected. They went from thinking of things as the pound to let's not have any more killing. It didn't really matter about anything in between. I think within our movement, that's a term that we've always struggled with because it felt like it was you were either on one side or the other side. One of the weird byproducts of the pandemic has been that... I don't think we've even heard that word at all this year. We've really been talking about collaboration. And that's really what we had from the start of the pandemic in March, with all these groups coming together that never would have come together before. Really talking about the crisis at hand and how could we most effectively deal with it together. What were the lessons that we could learn together? And how could we support each other and our teams in ways that we hadn't done before? That's incredible to me because when we can let words divide us and keep us from working together, then we are definitely on the wrong path.
0: One thing uh, of many that I'm encouraged about, Mary, is there's uh, a, a uniting, if you will, of all these different elements of the movement. So no longer is it shelters and rescues. It's all of us working together. And it's not to say that we're all the same. And it's certainly not all kumbaya, right? Yeah. I just mean uh, that more than ever, it is a collaborative environment. We are talking and listening to each other more than ever. Yeah. Incredibly exciting, but man, you know, it's taken us a lot to get here. I know,
1: and i I, I think we have a lot farther to go. But I think that the um, the biggest obstacles, the biggest challenges that we have in front of us are really the things that you guys at Best Friends are tackling right now. And that's really the diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. We've known forever that our movement, that animal welfare, is predominantly a white movement. And we've known that. And we've talked a lot about what can we do to change that. But we've never really, I think, grappled with those questions as much as we're doing right now. And it's unfortunate the people that had to die in order for us to really have our attention refocused on this but it's there now and as we work through it i think we have the opportunity to really transform as tony larusa often says calls it both ends of the leash we need as many different kinds of voices as we can provide space to and now what we've realized is that there are a lot of voices that have been marginalized and have been quieted and it's time for us to um to change that i think that's I wouldn't have missed this for anything, John. I am old, and I've been around for a long time, even before I was in animal welfare. But I wouldn't miss this part of the um, of the journey, the one that we're going to be
0: going on, for anything. Absolutely, echo that. You know, listen, Mary. For me, white cis male, this is going to be, uh, from my perspective, a hard road ahead, and. Again, I don't know that I'm quite in the right position to complain or have concerns, but what I think we can achieve is exciting for people and pets, but a hard road nonetheless. I definitely see that. It's like you said, there
1: are a lot of people that don't see what the journey's been like, but gosh, John, we're dealing in a time when history doesn't really count anymore just like facts don't count anymore. And the truth is, well, who's ever on the news right now and opening their mouth, and that's the truth. I'm just like, it's kind of everything and nothing at the same time. And so where do we figure out you know, what our role is? And it's times like this that sometimes I just really want to put my head in the sand and say, I don't want to deal with this because it's hard, but it is hard. And what you guys are tackling at Best Friends in terms of sort of the culture shift and the re-engagement. That's a phenomenal experiment on what our movement can do if we're willing to continue to ask the hard questions. You know, I am pretty much an old white lady, but my family is as mixed and diverse as it could be. You know, it's like my granddaughters and my great-granddaughters, they expect me to figure out this issue now because my issue is not their issue. And so I'm definitely up to the challenge because it's not one that I have to do alone. I get to do with all of the people in our movement that today are trying to figure out how we can change what we used to do into something that really is where we're much more, um, we're partners with the community, as opposed to thinking about the communities we serve, it's the communities we partner with.
0: Are there things that, you know, you're hearing or, you know, what can you offer in terms of what we can all do? individually uh, or maybe as organizations in this regard? You know,
1: uh, I listened to a woman yesterday, Miss Brown from the Humane Rescue Alliance, and she said, we have to respect people where they are. You know, I, and I've always used that phrase of meeting people where they are and just changing that word to respect, it sort of opened up whole new meetings of what we can do going forward and what we need to do. And I think challenging our biases is so important. I have to tell you, I have to confess, I'm a project bias junkie. You know, the um, implicit bias at Harvard University, like I've taken so many of their tests that periodically I get this little box that says, exactly how many of these tests have you taken? (laughs) But I love it because I think of it as electric shock therapy for my soul, because it really allows me to think about things differently. And I'm, I'm there trying to uh, get over on the test, thinking like, you know, okay, they're gonna ask me this kind of association, but I have to do that kind of association. And just when I get it down, then they shift everything. And then I have to make sure that I'm doing it fast enough. I love sort of having my own world turned upside down on a regular basis, because I feel like that keeps things moving forward in ways that we really need to make that happen. We can't be so focused on what happened yesterday if we think that's going to be the thing that will drive us for the next five years. I think we have to be nimble. And certainly COVID-19 has taught us that.
0: Do you, well, okay. So I asked the founders of Best Friends this. I'll be in the canyon at the sanctuary in Utah, beautiful sunset. And, you know, one of the founders, Francis Batista, will be standing next to me. And I'll say, is this what you thought it would be? Like, like, did you ever think it would become this? And he'll look at me and and say, um, heck no. M- maybe slightly stronger language than that. But you know, as we look where we are and reflect, you reflect back on your career. I imagine you're proud, but can you can you believe we've gotten to where we have? No, because I think that kind of introspection
1: is the um, I think that's the badge that I get for being as old as I am. But when you're in it and you're young, I mean, isn't there that quote that says something about when you're in the middle of it, you don't know that you're making history. And so I think we always knew that there was more to be done. And I think even the founders of Best Friends knew that sort of being able to see how far they were able to take it is so exciting, but it's also an awesome responsibility because it means that we can do even more going forward, because all those things that we thought were impossible became possible. And now that means there's even all the things that we see today that we say to ourselves, well, that could never happen. You know that that will happen, and we have to figure out a way to make that happen.
0: And that's what's so exciting. I'm excited for that. And, you know, and some of the things we still struggle with, like Pet ownership is a privilege and poor people shouldn't have pets. Are, you know, are we beyond that? Of course not. We have a ways to go. But when I step back and I look back, it's heartening to me to see the progress we've made. I mean, just the D and I stuff, a very long way to go. But I f- this time it feels different. And I, hopefully we can keep it going because we're having the conversations about race and income and how those things impact shelter killing. And it does feel like there's this sort of acceleration on issues and conversations that we, we didn't even have a couple of years ago.
1: I agree, John. And I think that you know for the first time, we get to put people and pets together on the same level, whereas I think we've always tend to focus more on the pets. Now we really get to bring those two things together And it's no longer acceptable for us to say, oh, I I work in a shelter because I really love the animals and I don't really like people. See, I don't think that works anymore. I think we have to look for people that want to work with people and the pets in their lives. We can't leave one for the other. I think that really opens up so much more for us to do. And I think COVID showed us what happened because when all the stay in place orders were starting to come down... Shelters that could come up with their response plans to COVID got a seat at the table. And that's really important. And when I say seat at the table, I mean, they were able to be with other leaders of other departments in their local municipalities and talk about what strategies were going to be employed going forward. And that is what we have to do more and more. We have to claim our seats like we've never done before. What are you most proud of? Probably I'm most proud of what we're going to do next year whatever that is.
0: So is that the same answer you would have given last year uh, or the year before? I think so, because I don't think we can, cause you, oh, you know why
1: John? Because anything I would have thought is gonna be wrong. Because if you had asked me in January 2020 where I thought we were gonna be in five years, I would say, well, I'd say most shelters would have a pretty robust foster program. And at least 50 to 60% of their animals would be out in foster. More people would be using technology and shelters and maybe two or three other things. And then COVID hits and all of a sudden animals are in foster. Shelters are empty. People that never would use technology before are setting up Zoom meetings to deal with their staff. They're using technology like they never had before. I mean, it was like all these things that I I thought were going to take years to do within like... 40 to 60 days, they were happening. So whatever I thought, I realized I I didn't have a clue. And judging impact, forget it. I'm terrible at that. And I think we're terrible at doing that as well because I think for me, I get too focused sometimes on the laggards, which I agree the laggards need to be left behind. And I forget people's ability to really be those early adopters probably has fewer obstacles than I actually think. And at least with COVID, I don't want to say that it took a global pandemic to change that thinking, but it certainly, I think, made me really challenged me in terms of what are those things that I thought would never change or what were those kinds of non-negotiables in my life? Because right now it's pretty much nothing. I think anything is on the table for us to be able to look at and figure out a better way of doing things.
0: I'm sorry, I'm jumping around, but I want to go back to Maddie's and uh, this family foundation. Three hundred million dollars more money donated to animal welfare than any other individuals. Yeah. Where did you start? Like, how did you decide where that money goes? Who gets what? And what is that? What does that decision making look like today?
1: Dave always said to us to invest in good programs. And as long as there were good, exciting programs to invest in, do it. And so he never put any constraints on us in terms of what we thought um, would fit within that very general framework. And having his support and his encouragement really meant everything to not only to Amy and Lori, but to Rich and to others that were part of Maddie's Fund at the time. So those community collaborations were a big deal right because it was getting everybody together in ways that we thought you know individually you could achieve this much but together you could achieve so much more and then as a result of those community collaborations there was a lot of emphasis on getting people to collect data getting people to write business plans getting people to do strategic planning all the kinds of things that we sort of take for granted these days on what you need when you start a new project but at that time nobody was really applying those kinds of business principles to the business of doing animal welfare. And then shelter medicine became such a big deal because looking at the universities and veterinary medicine and the training that was going on for veterinarians, as well as what was happening in the shelters, I mean, that was sort of a perfect marriage of need and resources coming together in order to create this pretty incredible new specialty of shelter medicine. And that was just a tremendous amount of fun and excitement Because this was an idea that Dr. Lori Peake had for us to really explore. And, you know, Cornell and Dr. Jan Scarlett and Dr. Lila Miller were doing some of that work, but we were able, thanks to Maddie's fund, to really take that to a whole new level. And that continues, I think, to be an important force for the kind of work that we're doing. Although I think if Lori were here right now, she would say that we've probably moved from shelter medicine to community medicine, if you think about it that way, in terms of having more animals in the communities and staying with families, and what kind of work can we do to support that on the veterinary medicine side. So I think that's an exciting new frontier for all of us. But the um, shelter medicine programs were just so exciting for us to um, deal with. And I think uh, we grew up a lot as an organization.
0: I tell you, a challenge that I see, and I I do think it was on display during COVID uh, and disclaimer, I have to do this all the time on the podcast, Mary, because this is just me, John Dunn, general know-it-all talking, not best friends, but there's a balance that we need to figure out how to strike. We've got community supported sheltering. At what point are we going too far? And sort of abdicating responsibility. But uh, so by that, I mean, the community can help, but it's not all entirely on them. And it's not entirely on the shelter either. Do you think that we're striking that balance? Well, I think, Do, do you know
1: what I mean? No, I think that's really good. And I think that you've really identified where the pitfalls are and what the problems are, because I think sometimes just to go back to what we started, my astrological sign is Libra. So it's the um, scales, it's balance. And for a large part of my life, the only balance that ever occurred was that the pendulum would swing so far one way and then swing back the other way. And then eventually it would slow down and it would arrive at the middle. Not because I took the middle, but because I would always go to the extremes and then eventually just wear out. So I think that's what our movement does too, as we try to figure out what the right approach is. And I think in this case, What's exciting to me is that it's not a one size fits all, but there are elements of it that can be applied in most situations and that we we need to do that. And, you know, I think Francis Bentista has said for a long, long time, when did the shelters become the solutions for our homeless pets? When did we think that that was okay? That when we had a problem with our pets, we could just dump them at the shelter? When did that become acceptable? And Francis is right about that. We've allowed certain things to happen because we only looked at one part of the the problem or looked at one end of the leash. And the reality is now we have an opportunity to really look at much more complex solutions. And so before January, 2020, we talked a lot about shelters becoming community resource centers. And I think that's what we're starting to find is that community centric approach to sheltering is really one that's based on that notion of a resource. And I think that there's more that we can do to provide those kinds of resources to our communities in ways that we hadn't done before. And that's why I love a lot of the work that Best Friends is sort of championing with more progressive field services and looking at the animal control side of it in a completely different way. Because I'll tell you, back when Maddie's Phone first started and we were doing those community collaborations, we didn't actually fund animal control. We funded rescue groups and other entities to take those animals from animal control, but we never actually provided support for animal control. It's not that we didn't like animal control, in spite of what people may have said, but part of it was because Richard spent a lot of time working in municipal governments, and he knew that the tendency for municipal departments to be penalized for doing good work would oftentimes result in reduced budgets. So if animal control got a lot of money from donations or from, you know, private means, it could potentially impact their ability to get money going forward. Their budgets would be docked. So we never wanted to get into that kind of a situation, so we tended to take a more indirect approach if you will, because if animal control didn't have to take care of so many animals, They would have more resources to be able to devote to whatever work they needed to do. Because while those animals would go into their facilities, they would actually ultimately go out for the rescue groups. But I think over time, what we have seen, and this is probably the most exciting, is that we've seen in many cases over the last 20 years, increasingly, a lot of the innovation that's occurring in our movement is actually coming from municipal shelters. And shelters with contracts. A lot of, of what I think of the new and exciting programming that's happening is coming from those sources. So why wouldn't we want to you know, to support that and be part of it? Because the government is going to do what the government does, as we have seen over and over. So we still have to figure out what's the right approach for Maddie's Fund to take. We're really looking for you know, who are the innovators out there and how can we support them in the work that they're doing? And the fun thing is that these days, the work is more broad-based than ever before.
0: Saving cats, we are not great at <laughs> still. Uh, the good news, well, I should say two to one. So for every dog killed in a shelter, two cats are killed. So we've got a ways to go. But the good news is we know how to save them. We know return to field programs are a huge piece of that puzzle. I'm curious, tell, tell me what Maddie's, what are you doing to support cat life saving?
1: Well, we are big supporters of the Million Cat Challenge, right? Doctors, you know, Kate Hurley and Julie Levy are the, um, you know, creators of that program. And when we first, uh, you know, heard about it all those many years ago, we knew that this was something that we had to be part of, that we wanted to support them, that these uh, two women really were sort of the rock stars of where life saving needed to be for felines. And we wanted to support them. And we did. And we continue to do that. You know, many of the programs that they came up with as a result of their initiatives are things that not just apply to cats, but actually have positive impacts for all the animals going into the shelter, that it really is just a much better approach to animal sheltering. And Knowing that they're there and we're able to support them, I mean, we love that. Being able to uh, support some of the work of Austin Pets Alive and the American Pets Alive groups on um, just the cat work that they're doing alone. Monica Frieden and um, your Peter Wolf, you know, have done a couple Um, presentations to just really get people to look at the animals in front of them. And instead of thinking about them as a whole population, really looking at that animal, if that animal's thriving and it's been thriving before it came into your shelter, it's probably going to thrive if you let it go back to wherever it came from. And just thinking about that. And then you look at a group like the San Francisco SPCA, that's doing so much on the legislative side to help people rewrite their ordinances. And I know that your legislative team at Best Friends is also really key to helping people do that. Because at the bottom line, I think that individually people can do a lot, but it really comes to changing those laws that basically are mandating that that cats have to go into the shelter when
0: they really don't and shouldn't. So as you look back now, knowing what you know, hindsight being 2020 is there anything that you would do differently but we've talked i think a, a bit about programs in that regard so you know maybe it's personally like what what might you do differently oh john that is an excellent question that's why i get paid the big bucks
1: wow i don't know i mean honestly i it's not like i don't have regrets because i absolutely do Like if you were to talk to my kids, they would say they were raised by wolves and I probably should have done more to make sure they knew how valued and loved they were. But professionally, I would think that I probably wouldn't change any of it because it was just so much fun getting to this place. But I guess if I had one regret, it's probably more when I think about how long it took us to get to the place where people were really focused I'm making sure that more animals didn't die. And, you know, when you look at those numbers that happened before, you know, in the 70s, like the millions and millions and millions of animals that were coming into shelters and were just being killed, they had no other outcome. And today, that's not the case. I mean, you know, the last numbers I looked at from Best Friends, it looks like that life saving gap is about, you know, just over 600,000 animals. That's incredible to me. And I'm, So proud of the fact that we're finally here, but I wished it hadn't taken so long
0: for us to get here. Well, of course, I think we all wish we'd known what we know sooner, Um, but here we are. We can't change it. It's now early 2021. Back in 1984, 17 million dogs and cats killed annually. We're now down to 625,000. Yeah. So this is doable. I mean, it's kind of, it sort of makes
1: a chill up my spine, to be honest with you, because that is so incredible. And that's why I know that we can get to where we need to go. But I think we have to work equally as hard to elevate those groups. Like what I have found is that, and this is what I think, you can still be sort of an epic shithole and get to 90%, but you're not going to be able to sustain 90% if you stay at the epic shithole.
0: And I don't think you're going to be able to use any of that. I think we can use it. Julie Castle, the best friend CEO on episode one, she said that word and, uh, you know, we've made it this far. Uh, well, uh, speaking of Julie, uh, we will get there. I agree with you. We will achieve 90% and beyond uh, across the country in every community. And I know we will sustain it. And, you know, Julie often reminds us that there are few social issues, causes, that will actually achieve their missions in uh, in our lifetime. I mean, it really is uh, pretty incredible. All right, so down to brass tacks. There are people listening to this who are thinking, wow, this is great, love Maddie's fun, cool conversation, but what do I need to do right now to get a grant, get money for the work I am doing?
1: Well- it's really interesting that you should raise that question because we're going to do a return to home stimulus challenge. So, and it's kind of cool to tell you the truth. And I'm probably not going to do it justice. So bear with me. But there's like nine other organizations that are supporting this endeavor with us. It's going to be a big challenge. And, you know, Gina Nepp is probably the, um, you know, the godmother of all things return to home. And she's talked about this for so long when she was at Front Street and other places. I think a big part of what's been happening with COVID, and actually it kind of goes back to something that you started with, was that notion of, are they really lost animals? Are they stray animals? Are they connected to people? What is it that we can do? And so this challenge is really designed to help shelters set into place some of the programming that would help them keep animals in the community that need to be in the community and don't need to come to the shelter. Groups will have a chance to register for that. It's open to all groups all across the country. And then um, the work that they'll be doing on that will happen in uh, February and March. So we're really excited about that. And most of our funding these days, John, really comes out with these challenges. I think the one we're going to do after the return to home will be on open adoptions, you know, which is definitely a little bit of a controversy still in our movement. Do we ask, you know, the uh, 500 key questions to make sure we get the perfect adopter? Or do we just have a conversation and let people have the animals that they
0: really want? Mary, I had a blast I could talk to you forever, um, but I just want to say I appreciate you. I'm thankful that you took a chance on this work back in those San Francisco days and that you stuck with it and you didn't leave when you thought maybe you might. You are a force in the movement. You have touched so many animals and people. And I hope uh, that in the middle of this just wild, you know, pandemic time that you and yours uh, are able to stay safe and sane over the next, you know, I don't know, who knows how long.
1: Oh, thank you, John. That's just incredible. But there's so much in this movement for us to be proud of every single day. And I would not have been able to get through, you know, the pandemic so far if it wasn't for my husband, I'll give him credit. My kids, I'll give them credit. And my dogs, they've got to be right in there too.
0: If you are interested in your shelter rescue organization taking part in the No Place Like Home Challenge, we've got a link up on the website bestfriends.org slash podcast. The producers, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.